Let's go ahead and turn to Jude. We're still in the book of Jude, chapter 1. There's only one chapter. Now, once again, last week we were able to cover three verses, which was pretty amazing. The week before we had only covered one verse, and today again we're just going to focus on one verse, verse 20 of Jude, chapter 1. I'm going to read that verse now, then we'll pray. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word together. And we just ask now that you'd bless this time of study in this book of Jude. And for those watching on live stream, wherever they may be, or later on on YouTube, Lord, just just pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, you promised that you would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Paraclete, to teach us and to lead us into all truth. So we pray that now as we study your word together, you would cause your Holy Spirit to impart insight and understanding to us as we look at these scriptures this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here again we find Jude using that phrase that he used back in verse 17. But you, beloved. Again, that word agapatoi or agapatoi uh, from the word agape. So Jude is expressing that unconditional love that God has for us and that we are to have towards one another as fellow believers in Christ. And he's contrasting their relationship with each other and with God with that these persons who cause divisions, as he mentioned in verse 19. The ones he's been talking about throughout this book, these who creep in unnoticed into the church. We have labeled them the creeps. So he's making a contrast between these or them and us. He says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Or some translations read simply, build yourselves up. But when you add the ing, the building, it's an active tense. And it indicates the need that we have as believers to continue building ourselves up daily. Yes, God did the heavy lifting when he gave his only begotten son. He did not do it joyfully. It was painful. But I guess in one sense you could say joyful because he knew that the result would be the salvation of many, many people. Jesus did the heavy lifting when he literally died on the cross for our sins and all the suffering that he endured leading up to that crucifixion. So when Jude says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, let's be reminded, God the Father, God the Son, they did the heavy lifting. But as I've mentioned many times here at Calvary Chapel East, we as believers are responsible for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I didn't make that up. Those are the words of Paul. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So Paul is commending the Philippians. You know how sometimes, well, for example, in school, you have kids in a classroom, and maybe with the teacher present, they're well-behaved. All we know, that's, we know that's an ever-increasing problem in today's world. But then when the teacher has to leave the room for something, all heck breaks loose, Right? Paul is saying that I know not only were you obedient, submissive to God and to my leadership, but I know that you were also even more so in my absence. So that was an indicator of the heart of these Philippian believers. They didn't just act like Christians when Paul was around. They did it all the time. And he says even more so in my absence. And so he's encouraging them even though he's commending them for being obedient to God and to God, godly appointed leaders. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, at a, just a brief glance, without really evaluating that, one might be led to believe that we, we are saved by our own works. That's not true. We're saved by grace through faith. 
Let me look at 2 Peter 1, 5 and 6 for a moment. Also for this very reason, giving all diligence. So be serious about this, Peter says. Work hard at it. Add to your faith. And he gives us a list here. But again, he's telling the believers they have a responsibility here. Add to your faith. Now the faith comes from God. It's the gift of God, as we're told in the book of Ephesians. The faith that we have to believe in God, to believe in Christ, to trust Him, is a gift from God. Not only can we not be saved by works, even the faith that we need to believe does not come from us. It comes from God. But now once we've been given that faith and we've made that decision, we've made that commitment to Christ, Peter says, you believers, add to your faith virtue. Be virtuous. To virtue, add knowledge. Again, knowledge is a result of study, right? We can be saved in an instant, in a moment, transformed, renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But knowledge is something that comes as we make the effort to learn, to study. So Peter says, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. And for the believer, self-control is really yielding to the Spirit of God. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And then he says to self-control, perseverance. Again, God will strengthen us. In James chapter 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials or temptations, testings. For the trying of your faith worketh patience or endurance. So as we, with God's help, with God's strength, endure the trials that everyone faces in this life, it builds up perseverance within us. It strengthens us if we hang in there. If we don't grow weary, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we will reap a harvest of righteousness. So these are things Peter says as believers, once God has imparted to us the faith to trust him, to believe in him, then we are to add to that faith these various qualities, characteristics, spiritual fruit by growing in Christ. And so just like he says in Philippians 2.12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What that means is this. Once we've been saved by grace through faith, we have a responsibility to build upon that initial act of salvation. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith or in your most holy faith, writes Jude. And this is how that works. That's how we build ourselves up on our most holy faith. I skipped over Acts 2.42. Let me read that. They continued steadfastly or devoted themselves to, again, as we talked about last week, the apostles' doctrine. And that's number one here in the list, if you notice. The apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. These are four vitally important key elements that come into play with regards to us building ourselves up on our most holy faith. Again, God did the heavy lifting. Jesus did the heavy lifting. God imparted to us the faith to believe in him, to trust him. But then we have a responsibility to build on that. And these are four very important key elements. The apostles' doctrine, the word of God. Fellowship, gathering together with other believers, which unfortunately we can't do right now. But perhaps within your homes, you may be gathered in small groups there together. And Lord willing, one day we will be together again. But the Apostles' Doctrine, the fellowship, I mean, it's just a proven fact. And it's, and it's also scriptural that we tend to become like those with whom we associate, with whom we fellowship, the ones we hang out with. And so unfortunately, in, in the average week, we probably spend a lot more time 
with non-believers in the workplace, at school, and so forth. And again, we are to be the light to them, the salt. But if we don't have enough time of fellowship with other believers, that can really have an impact on our heart, our mind. The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I think there are at least two aspects to praying in the Holy Spirit. One, praying prayers that are led and inspired by the Holy Spirit as opposed to our own desires. And that's a question we can all ask ourselves. How much of our prayer lives are spirit-led, spirit-filled, and how much of our prayer lives are really all about what we want, about our desires, with little or no concern for what God's will is? Praying in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, means praying according to the will of God. Ephesians 6.18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, sometimes you hear people pray a prayer like, Lord, just bless everybody in the whole world. We, we call that, among other things, a shotgun prayer. If you know how a shotgun works, you have a shotgun shell with a lot of little tiny BBs in there, and when you fire the gun, they just spray everywhere. And hopefully, one or more of those BBs hits something, right? A shotgun prayer. Just pray for everybody all over the world. Well, I would propose to you that in terms of prayer, God would really want us to be sharpshooters, focusing in on specific situations, specific people in our prayers. And notice here, he specifically says, keep praying for all the Lord's people. Now again, I think first and foremost, for example, if you're an attendee, of Calvary Chapel East, or wherever you call your home church. If you don't have one, I would encourage you to get one. You need to be plugged into a local body of believers, but my first priority is to pray for those within my own congregation, those that I'm in the closest contact and relationship with. And then I pray for other people close to me around the country and so forth. And, but again, another shotgun prayer might be, Lord, bless all the missionaries in the whole world. That's okay, but I think it's more effective if you had a list of specific missionaries in specific places and you could pray for them specifically. I think that would be more effective. But again, we see a priority here, the Lord's own people. Does God care about the lost? Absolutely. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and so forth. God cares about every human being. But it is biblical to place a higher priority on those in the body of Christ. Because if we can't love our own family members, as it were, then how can we truly display the love of Christ to the world? Again, in Galatians chapter 6, it says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's kind of like with your own biological family. Oftentimes we are very nice to people out in the world, but then we might go home and we might not be so nice to our own family members. Our own family members know who we really are. Our first responsibility is to love them, to cherish them, to minister to them, and then as we minister to others, it will be real, it will be genuine, it will not be hypocritical. The first aspect of praying in the Holy Spirit is praying prayers that are led and inspired by the Holy Spirit as opposed to our own desires. I might point out that a fleshly prayer is not likely to do much good in any situation. James 4, beginning in verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? And again, James is writing to believers, to Christians. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? And we talked about this last week, the flesh versus the spirit. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. 
My suspicion here is that what James is referring to is what Christ said, that if you harbor hatred in your heart for someone, it's the same as if you've murdered them. And I think that's what James is referring to here. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You lust after what other people have. You covet. You fight and war. Now, this is where it gets interesting because this verse is often quoted out of context. You do not have because you do not ask. So now there is some validity there, obviously, to what James is saying. Rather than coveting what other people have, fighting, warring, hating, being jealous, ask God for what you need and for what he believes you need. But notice what happens next. You do not have because you do not ask, but then, even when you do ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so this is the example of a fleshly prayer versus a spiritual Holy Spirit prayer. James says, on the one hand, the things that you're coveting after, lusting for, and so forth, bring those desires to God, and if they are in his will, he will fulfill them, and if not, then you should be content with what you have. But then you go ahead and ask, but you don't receive anyway because you're asking for the wrong things for the wrong reasons. That's a fleshly prayer. 1 John 5.14 Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Oftentimes people get angry at God because they say, I did pray and God didn't do anything. God didn't answer my prayer. I'm mad at God. I don't like God anymore. I don't believe in God anymore because when I prayed, nothing happened. Well, John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, why would he turn a deaf ear to a prayer that is not according to his will? Because he's probably protecting us from something that in the end would not be good for us, even though we may want it, we may desire it, we may think it's the right thing. I like to say, using the title of the uh, popular 1950s TV show, Father Knows Best. Our Father Knows Best. Here's another question you might ask. Well, what if I don't know what his will is concerning a particular person or situation? The confidence in our prayers comes from knowing that we have prayed according to God's will. What if I don't know God's will? We have the example of Christ, Luke twenty-two forty-two, when he's there in the Garden of Eden. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Jesus was being honest with the Father. I'd rather not go this route if there's another possibility. As much as Jesus was willing to lay down his life for us, and he did, He said, Father, if there's a plan B, this would be a great time to initiate it. If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so there is your your fail-safe, your safety net. Father, this is what I'm asking for, I'm hoping for, I'm praying for. But ultimately, Lord, I want your will for my life, and you know best. John 15, 7, if you abide in me, we know what that means, right? To live in Christ, it's a lifestyle. It's not just a Sunday only walk with God, which really isn't a walk. If the only time you hang out with God or his people is once a week on Sunday or whatever day your church meets, that's not really a walk, is it? A walk is a daily thing. If you abide in me, if you walk with me, if you live in me, And notice this, because we talked about this last week, the importance of God's word, putting our hope in his word. It's okay to do that. There are some within certain segments of the church that have criticized groups like Calvary Chapel and others who put a really high emphasis on the word of God, studying the word, meditating upon the word, being in the word, that that is imbalanced. But as we saw last week, 
Even David said, I put my hope in your word. God says that I have honored my word above my own name. I really don't think we can overemphasize the importance of God's word. It is our primary link and connection to him. Obviously, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, which means God lives inside of us. But in order to really get to know him, connect with him, we saw where Peter said, add to your faith knowledge. And so Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. We talked about this last week that we're to be reminded. We see the various New Testament writers, Peter and Paul and so on, talking about reminding us. But we can't be reminded of something we've never heard before. We need to be in the Word of God. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done. And what I believe Jesus is communicating to us here is that when we abide in him, when we walk with him, when we live with him day by day, and we take his word into our hearts and minds, he says, my words abide in you, live in you. Have you taken in enough of God's word? Have you absorbed enough of God's word to where it's actually a part of you? Throughout the day, perhaps, as you face different situations, scriptures may come to mind. The Holy Spirit will remind you. And it has a daily impact on your life, the way you live, the way you think, the way you interact with other people. Well, if that's the case, then you will have godly desires. You will have good desires. You will have right Desires, And that's why Jesus says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, then the third part of this little equation, if you will, is that you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Because you won't be asking for ungodly things if you are walking with him, abiding with him, and his word abides in you. You we just wouldn't pray that kind of a prayer. And so the percentages, the chances of your prayer being answered are much higher. And again, you always have your fail-safe, your fallback, your safety net. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. In fact, remember when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, we refer to that prayer as the Lord's Prayer. J. Vernon McGee, one of my favorite Bible teachers, referred to it as the disciples' prayer. He says we really shouldn't be calling it the Lord's Prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer because Jesus gave it to the disciples to teach them how to pray. But whether you want to call it the disciples' prayer or the Lord's Prayer, notice in the Lord's Prayer, disciples' prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, right, as it is in heaven. And I don't remember who gave this definition, but I've heard it said that prayer is not the effort to get our will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. So that's the first aspect of praying in the Holy Spirit. Christ-centered, Christ-focused, godly prayers, spiritual prayers led by the Holy Spirit that are birthed out of desires that come from being in right relationship with God. Two, this gets to be a little more controversial depending upon your denominational persuasion, but praying in a heavenly language. Some have described this as perfect communication with God. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men, today I'm speaking to you in English. We have many languages throughout the world. There are many tongues of men on this planet. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. That's interesting, isn't it? According to Paul, there's also an angelic tongue or language. Kind of reminds me of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. They have that elvish language and the different languages that he developed in his fictional writings. 
But this is real. Paul says, tongues of men and of angels. But have not love, agape, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And so we're going to explore for a few minutes this gift, this spiritual gift of tongues. But Paul says the catalyst has to be love, agape. There are those who have gotten caught up in this idea of seeking gifts for their own sake, like a spiritual merit badge. But they're really given by God to bless us, to bless the body of Christ, and we'll look at that now. But why would Paul use this comparison if it were not possible? He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. We know Paul spoke more than one language. Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic most likely. At least three, perhaps more. Perhaps some Italian. He spent a lot of time in Rome. But he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Why would Paul use this comparison if it were not possible to speak with the tongues of men and of angels? In Acts 2, Acts chapter 2, we read beginning of verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, the believers, were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now in this particular instance, as you go on through the chapter, what we find is all of these Jewish followers of Christ gathered in the upper room, the 120, were heard by people from various other countries who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and they heard all these believers praising God in their own various languages. This was a supernatural spiritual gift, but it was not an angelic tongue. These were tongues of men. It was a supernatural event, but in this case, the tongues were known languages. But I want to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 through 5. Pursue love, agape again. Paul has just finished talking about the way of agape, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll look at in a moment. But now he goes into chapter 14. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So we are encouraged to desire spiritual gifts because God has given them to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 delves into that subject of the various gifts and the various operations of those gifts. And they're given for the mutual benefit and edification of the body of Christ. So I can be more effective in ministering to you, you can be more effective in ministering to me, and we can all be more effective in ministering to one another. And so more than likely, our desire for spiritual gifts is going to be tied to how much we really are interested in getting involved in other people's lives, how much we really desire to help other people within the body of Christ. But Paul says, desire spiritual gifts. Want them, ask for them, seek them. But also pursue love, because as we see in chapter 13, we read this already, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It's just a bunch of noise if it's not empowered by that agape love. So we read on. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men. So this is different than the tongues in Acts chapter 2. He does not speak to men but to God, which causes me to suspect at this point Paul is referring to that tongues of angels, a heavenly language, speaking to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And so we need to take a moment to define New Testament prophecy versus Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy has to do with foretelling 
of future events. And the New Testament prophecy and the gift of prophecy has to do with forth-telling, which means speaking forth the Word of God in a way that has a direct impact on the listener, has a connection perhaps with world events, what's happening in the world, speaking the Word of God in a way that has a prophetic bent to it. It's not a foretelling like the Old Testament. All of the prophecy that God intends to lay out for us has already been revealed in His Word, the, the Old and New Testament. Forth-telling rather than foretelling. But Paul is saying here that in terms of ministering to the body of Christ, prophecy is more beneficial because everybody can hear it and understand it, whereas the tongues that Paul is referring to here, angelic tongues, are to God. Verse 4, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, and that's very interesting and unique in and of itself, because every other spiritual gift is given that I might edify you and you might edify me. It's not for personal benefit. This particular gift of tongues Paul is speaking of here, which appears to be an angelic tongue, if you will, a heavenly tongue, is for your own edification, the building up of your own spirit. It's the only gift designated for self-edification. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we read that God has given gifts to the church in the form of men, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. And within that context, I think certain individuals will have a prophetic gift mixed in there with their teaching, their pastoring, evangelizing, and so forth. And that is a benefit to the church. Now, Paul says something very interesting in verse 5. I wish you all spoke with tongues. Now again, at the end of chapter 12, it says, do all speak in tongues, question mark. But if you really study the context of chapter 12, Paul is talking about offices within the church. Here he's speaking about a personal prayer language, if you will. And again, even as he says in chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. He doesn't even say if. He says, though I do. And here he says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. Now, if that weren't possible, it would be like dangling a spiritual carrot in front of us, right? Wow, I'd really like to have the gift of tongues, but I guess God doesn't want me to have it. He won't give it to me. No. Paul says, I wish you all did. To me, that says that that is a personal prayer language available to every believer who wants it. What did he say at the beginning of the chapter? Desire spiritual gifts. Some people are scared of this particular gift. It's just, again, it bypasses the human intellect. Like all the other gifts, it requires stepping out in faith. My own experience was I grew up in a Pentecostal church listening to the whole congregation break out in tongues every week. It's kind of scary. As a little kid, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. I thought they were all speaking Spanish. I didn't know. But I never spoke in tongues myself. And being that I left that church in the seventh grade, I don't recall anybody ever seriously trying to encourage me to practice that gift. I hadn't really learned about spiritual gifts yet at that point in my life. But as I rededicated my life to Christ as a teenager and began to to go out and... uh, sing Christian music publicly as a means of evangelism. A friend of mine who was a drummer in another Christian band was attending Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck Smith. And he was always bugging me about the gift of tongues and how I really needed it. I needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And always, I was always kind of a rebellious youth. I didn't like anybody telling me what to do. So I was very resistant at first, but... Uh, he was persistent, and I be- he began to wear me down, and I began to think, well, maybe I really do need this. 
And I can't even tell you exactly when or where, but one day, it just happened very quietly, very gently. I began to, quote, pray in the Spirit. And it's been a blessing in my life. Paul says, I wish you all spoke with tongues. Why would he say that? Because he just told us it's for our own edification. You could label it perfect prayer because it's the Holy Spirit praying through you, again, bypassing the human intellect. It's the Holy Spirit praying in you and through you. God hears it. He understands it, even when we don't. He goes on and says, But even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless he indeed he interprets, that the church may receive edification. And so in spite of the fact, I mentioned I grew up in a Pentecostal church where everybody would burst into tongues every week at a certain time in the service. I've been to more than one church like that too. But in this same passage in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, let it be done by two or three at the most and let someone interpret. If there's no interpreter, then those people are to keep silent. Just pray to yourself and God. We go down to verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 14. What is the conclusion then? Paul says, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. In other words, praying in the Spirit, this second aspect that we're talking The first aspect, remember, praying prayers that are led by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as opposed to fleshly, selfish prayers. Secondarily, literally praying in an unknown tongue. Paul says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to pray with understanding, words that I myself know, that I have um, constructed under the Spirit's leading. I will pray with understanding, but I'll also pray with the Spirit, that prayer language. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. So actually, according to the Scriptures, you can sing in the Spirit, as they say. You can sing in a heavenly tongue. And actually, in the early days of Calvary Chapel, they used to have, and many of the Calvary Chapels still have these types of meetings, what we call an afterglow service. And I would go to those in Costa Mesa. This is during the Jesus Movement days. And the Holy Spirit was moving very powerfully at that time. And as you study the history of the church, there have been seasons there have been outpourings of the Holy Spirit down through the centuries ever since the book of Acts. That first outpouring that initiated and inaugurated the New Testament church. That time, late 60s, early 70s, was a time of tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I believe that's around the time that the charismatic movement within the Catholic Church the Episcopalian Church, some of these high churches and mainline churches, there was actually an outbreak, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. And so I was in meetings there at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, where they would break out a pretty good number of people, hundreds of people, at least dozens upon dozens, mostly young people, singing in the Spirit. And it's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Unfortunately, when these things happen, people make note of them, and then when the Holy Spirit is no longer doing that, it's no longer that season, people try to manufacture it, and it's just not the same. It has to be a divine, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But again, as we talk about this prayer language, this is given by God to any believer who wants it as a very special way to communicate with God and to build yourself up in your spirit, you can also sing it. You can pray it, and you can sing it, and it's beautiful. Paul says, what's the conclusion then? I'll pray with the spirit, I'll pray with the understanding, I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. And we know that having been a Jewish rabbi, that 
it's very common with the, with the Jews, with the Orthodox in particular, they, uh, the cantor, they would have the, the Jewish rabbi who was a cantor who would sing the prayers, sing the scriptures. So through the Holy Spirit, God has given us as believers the ability to communicate with him in a way that bypasses the human intellect, thereby almost completely eliminating the risk of praying in the flesh. The first example we gave, praying in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, prayers inspired by the Spirit versus fleshly prayers. Well, one of the beauties of praying in the Spirit is it eliminates that possibility. Now, Romans 8, 26, 27 Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. So we talked about this. What if we don't know the will of God in a particular situation? One, we can be like Jesus, which we should be, and say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. But here Paul tells us, if we don't know what we should pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so another aspect of this prayer language, praying in the Spirit, is that at that point, the Holy Spirit becomes the intercessor by praying in us and through us. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so there's a direct connection. The Holy Spirit living inside of us there's a direct connection between the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And so, again, that connection, when we don't know how to pray, what to pray for ourselves or someone else, the Holy Spirit can take over if we will let him. Okay, so just as we each must make a personal choice to receive Christ, we talked about this last week. We even prayed a prayer over the internet with those who might want to receive Christ. We can do that again today also. But even as we each must make a personal choice to receive Christ, we each have the choice on whether or not to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I'm talking to all of you out there today, I'm sure there's not a one of you, although God can be pretty persuasive. He does pursue us. At the end of the day, you had to make a personal choice. God would not force you to follow him, to live for him. He will give you that opportunity. He will give you that gift of faith, that gift of repentance, but you have to act upon it, just like any other gift you might receive. No matter how amazing the gift might be, new car, new boat, new guitar, whatever, people get some pretty cool gifts sometimes, but if you don't pick it up and use it, it's useless, it's worthless, it's meaningless. So God does give us the gift, but we must choose to receive it. And the same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. Now when we're born again, we... Confess our sins before God. We repent, which means to turn and go the other way, to turn from a life of sin and turn and follow God. We confess our sins. We repent. We ask Christ to come into our heart to be our Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit does come to live inside of us. But in the New Testament, there are three Greek words that describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. N-E-N -E means he comes to be inside of you. Para means he comes alongside of you like the Holy Spirit, the paraclete the comforter, the helper, the guide. He walks alongside of us. But then the third act of the Holy Spirit, epi, E-P-I, epi is when he comes upon you. And that's something that happens as we've been studying here today. When we desire gifts, when we desire the empowering and filling of the Holy Spirit, remember the 120 believers in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 were already believers. They were already born again. But Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, tarry in Jerusalem. Do not leave Jerusalem until you've received power 
from the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit to be witnesses for me. So they gathered together in that room and they began to pray and the Holy Spirit came upon them, a P. So yes, you have the Holy Spirit as a believer when you're born again. He lives inside of you. He comes alongside. But if you really desire that fullness of the Spirit, if you desire the gifts of the Spirit to be operative in your life, God's waiting for you to ask Him. Now, your salvation does not depend on whether or not you speak in tongues. Sadly, there are some groups that teach that. They teach that if you have not spoken in tongues, you're not really born again. That's not true. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, you confess your sins, you repent, invite him to come and live inside of you, you are saved. Your salvation does not depend on whether or not you speak in tongues. But it is a blessed gift offered by God to every believer for self-edification and for intercession. Keep that in mind. Those are the two key elements of a prayer language, a heavenly language. Self-edification and intercession. Luke 11, 9 through 13. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. God wants us to desire these things. Now we know that some very wealthy, very prosperous people just shower their kids with all kinds of material things. And those kids tend to be not very thankful, not very appreciative. They don't usually turn out very well. Their lives don't usually go very well. And God does not want to raise us up to be a bunch of spoiled brats. He wants us to seek after these things, things of the Spirit, not the material things. And so when he says, ask, seek, and knock, that's what he's talking about. He promises Matthew 6, don't worry about these things. God knows what you need. Look at the birds of the air and the, and the flowers of the field. He takes care of all of those things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, again, a lot of people misapply this passage. Well, if you need a new car, you need a new house, whatever, ask, seek, knock, you'll get it. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual things. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, some might find that offensive. How dare Jesus call me evil? Well, the Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of our good works are like filthy rags in his sight. Apart from God, apart from Christ, we are all evil. We are all sinners. We're all part of a fallen human race. He says, even though you're evil, you're imperfect. You're not perfect like God. You still know how to give good gifts to your children. You know how to bless your children. But again, if you want to raise good children, quality children, honorable children, you just don't throw everything at them. You want them to seek after it. You want them to work for it. Prove how much they really want it. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? And that's the, the key here, the clue, that Jesus is talking about spiritual things. Ask, seek, knock. Paul said desire spiritual gifts. Jesus says how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so even as we must choose when it comes to salvation, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Everyone, anyone and everyone has the opportunity to be saved, but it comes down to your choice. Do you want what God is offering, and are you willing 
to take up your cross. Not literally, although maybe it happens. some people have had to do that. But taking up your cross really means for Christ, it was the cross of rejection. Rejected by his own people. Rejected by those whom he came to save. Are you willing to take up that cross that there will be people who will not want to associate with you? They won't like you because you look like Jesus. Are you willing to take up that cross of self-sacrifice? Remember what Jesus said? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, Father. It's the cross of self-denial and the cross of rejection. It's your choice. But the, but the pathway that it will take you down is the pathway that leads to eternal life. Matthew 7, 11. This is Matthew's version of this same teaching from Jesus. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him, Luke says the Holy Spirit, Matthew says good gifts. I would propose to you that the good gifts are the gifts of the Holy Spirit, including the gift of tongues. Gifts are given as an expression of love, and the best gifts are the ones that are actually useful and helpful to us, right? God doesn't give frivolous, useless, meaningless gifts. Sometimes we just give goofy, throwaway gifts to one another, right? Maybe we just don't know what to get that person. Or maybe it's a gag gift. God doesn't have any gag gifts. All of his gifts are useful, purposeful, meaningful, and they are good. So I don't think there's really any difference between Luke saying, the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, and Matthew says he will give good gifts to those who ask him. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, 31 Earnestly desire the best gifts. And I show you a more or the most excellent way. And we call that the way of agape. Chapter 13, the love chapter. Actually, yeah, this is 1231, I believe. 1 Corinthians 1231, leading into chapter 13. The way of agape. Paul shows us the way agape in, in chapter 13. We saw how that we can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if we have not love, it's a bunch of noise. He goes on with a number of those descriptive phrases. The gifts of the Spirit being utilized through the catalyst of agape love. Just like we can abuse people with the Word of God if it's not ministered in love. You've probably heard the term Bible thumpers. Now, sometimes that's an apt description of how people are using the word. Sometimes it's not. But if we don't minister to people the word of God in love, it becomes a bludgeon. It becomes a club. That's not what God intended. The same thing can be true with the gifts of the Spirit if they're not ministered in love. Then they become a bunch of noise. They lose their effectiveness. Love, agape love, is the catalyst for these gifts. So back to Jude one twenty, where we started. But you, beloved, so these other guys are tearing down the church. They're undermining, dividing, attempting to destroy from within because they're all about themselves. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Spirit. So I would propose to you, one, that we're to be spiritual bodybuilders. In 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily exercise profits a little, Paul writes, but godliness is profitable for all things. And yet, what? and we look at our world today, there seems to be a much higher priority on bodily exercise, right? Man, we've got gyms on every corner. Workout centers. Now, they're all closed right now because you don't want a bunch of sweaty people hanging out together, that's for sure, in the midst of this virus. But if you look at our society as a whole, it would appear that there's a much greater emphasis on bodily exercise 
So now you can see people on their, you know, their Facebook and so forth and Twitter working out at home, you know, and Paul says, well, there's a little benefit there, but godliness is profitable for all things. Bodily exercise doesn't really benefit you much, spiritually speaking. But godliness is beneficial in all things, having promise of the life that is now that now is and of that which is to come. Bodily exercise will do you no good in the next life because you're either going to be in hell in eternal torment, or you're going to be in paradise with God, dwelling within a perfect, incorruptible, imperishable body. And you don't even have to work out to get it, except by being a spiritual bodybuilder here in this life. That's what will be preparing you for a life of paradise in eternity with God. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, be a spiritual bodybuilder. And secondly, praying in the Holy Spirit. One of the key ways in which we build ourselves up spiritually is by practicing spirit-filled prayers. Paul said, I'll pray with the Spirit. I'll pray with understanding. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in, we read this already, but we're going to read it one more time. The early believers continued, and that's a biggie, folks. The ones who get the prize are the ones who finish the race, right? They continued. Sadly, we all know people who have not continued. They've fallen out of the race. They've dropped out. They continued steadfastly, determinedly, with determination. They continued steadfastly in or devoted themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine, there it is again, number one, the Word of God. Two, fellowship. There are a lot of people in the world today that identify as believers, but they spend little or no time with other believers. That's a violation of Scripture, really. Paul says, don't forsake the assembling together of the saints. For the early church, it was secondary only to the word of God, the apostles' doctrine. The second thing on the list was fellowship. We need to spend time with other believers to encourage one another, to hold each other accountable. What if your brother or sister in Christ starts to embrace some rather weird beliefs? They need someone to help get them back on track. That's part of our responsibility to one another as believers. The Apostles' Doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, which in the early church had to do with those love feasts where they would have something like what we would call a potluck, and then they would take communion together. And so again, you can take communion at home by yourself or with your family, but God also wants to celebrate the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a family. And there's nothing wrong with having a potluck now and then either because that's another way of having fellowship, breaking bread. One of the ways that you expressed closeness, friendship, fellowship, intimacy in Jesus' time was to share a meal with someone. Remember the Last Supper? And Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for eating with tax collectors and sinners. People the Pharisees considered evil, unclean, undesirable. And why was Jesus criticized for doing that? Because that act of eating a meal with those people was an indicator of fellowship, connection, acceptance. The Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers, which we've spent quite a bit of time on today, prayers. Obviously, we could spend a lot more time on that subject, but I trust you all have Bibles at home or Internet where you can look up Bibles, on the, and you can study prayer more on your own. We've covered some of the essentials, I think, this morning of a spirit-filled prayer life, twofold, being led 
inspired by the Spirit in your prayers because you're abiding in Christ. His Word is abiding in you. And then there's that gift that's available if you want it. You can ask God for it, and He promises He will give it to you. Prayer, folks, is so important that Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, this is one of the shorter verses in the Bible, pray without ceasing. Wow. Non-stop prayer, really, all day long? Every waking moment? That's a tall order. But the rewards are definitely worth it. And just as physical bodybuilding requires much discipline, so does spiritual bodybuilding, right? Now, it's would be very difficult for any of us to be praying every moment of every day. But I think that's Paul's way of telling us how important prayer is, that it should be interwoven and laced into our lives throughout the day. In any given situation, as we train, as we practice spiritual bodybuilding, so to speak, we can develop that innate sense within ourselves that every situation can benefit from prayer. Lord, help me. Lord, help this person. Sometimes I'll be driving down the street and I'll see a person that has kind of a distressed look about them, whether it's a a homeless person or someone with a physical disability or something, and, and I'll just pray for them. Lord, please help that person. Bless that person. Draw them to yourself. We can be praying while we're driving. I don't recommend closing your eyes. That takes extra faith. My wife has a story many years ago as we get ready to close here. She was in her 20s. She was driving down I-25 in Denver in a snowstorm, blinding snowstorm. She's got her Camaro, which those early 80s Camaros weren't really all that stable. They were rear-wheel drive and so forth. Driving down I-25 northbound, I think. But all of a sudden, she can see directly in front of her because visibility was very limited. A great big truck, and she's going at a pretty high rate of speed. She didn't know what else to do, so she just closed her eyes, held onto the wheel. The next thing she knows, the truck is gone. It's behind her somewhere. She has no idea how that happened, but I think we do know. It was a supernatural act of God to protect her. But I wouldn't recommend trying that. Unless the Holy Spirit's really telling you to. But prayer is so important. Paul says pray without ceasing. So it's important to lace prayer with understanding, prayer in the Spirit throughout our daily lives. And that, with that, we'll conclude for today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for again for your word. It's so amazing. Lord, it's the most fantastic guidebook we could ever ask for. I guess we shouldn't be surprised because you wrote it. Lord, I pray that we can learn from this teaching today how to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. The various ingredients and elements that go into that process. Help us, Father, to be true spiritual bodybuilders and desire the gifts of the Spirit that you've made available to us. Lord, help us to be led in our prayer lives by your Holy Spirit, inspired by your Holy Spirit, inspired by the truth of your word, that we would not engage in fleshly, selfish prayers, but we would pray the kinds of prayers that you love to answer. As we read this morning, if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And Lord, we thank you for that fail-safe, that fallback, that safety net we have, that when we just don't know, there's a couple things we can do. One, we can say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And two, if we choose to do so, we can exercise that heavenly language, that prayer language that's available to every believer. And Lord, for those out there this morning watching on the internet, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, and so forth, if there's anyone out there and they're saying, wow, I would sure like to have that gift. Lord, if they're already a believer and they're desiring that gift or other gifts of the Spirit. We were told this morning in your word to desire the gifts. I pray that you would help them to reach out to you and receive those gifts in the same way that they received the gift of salvation, by faith. 
I want to pray two prayers right now for those watching. The first one would be for those who don't know God but would like to. If you'd like to know God, if you'd like to yield your life over to him right now, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. Father, I acknowledge to you that I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I pray in Jesus' name that you would forgive me for my sins. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I accept your sacrifice in my place for my sins. Please wash me with your precious blood. I want to be born again. Please send your Holy Spirit to live inside of me, to make me a new person, and help me to live my life for you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for the precious gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, God is faithful. He will honor that prayer prayed with sincerity and honesty. He will forgive you of your sins. He will save you. He'll come and live inside of you. And he will give you that promised gift of eternal life. The second prayer is for those who would like to receive the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, or even specifically the gift of tongues, praying in a heavenly language for self-edification, for intercession. If you'd like to pray with me now, Father, I thank you that not only have you saved me, you've, you've made available to me the gifts of your Holy Spirit, that I might be able to minister to others more effectively. And then that one special gift for my own edification and intercession, the gift of tongues. Father, I pray right now that you would pour out upon me your Holy Spirit. Lord, even as you've come to live inside of me and you've already walked alongside of me, that you would now come upon me. Baptize me in your Holy Spirit, Lord. Activate those gifts within me, the ones that you have given to me. As your word says, you've given gifts severally to every member of the body of Christ. And Lord, because your apostle Paul has told me that he wished we all spoke in tongues and that we should desire the gifts of the Spirit, I now pray that you would give me that gift that I might communicate with you in a way that bypasses my own human intellect and allows me to have that perfect communication with you, Father. Even now, I ask you for that gift, and I thank you for it. I trust you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.